0: Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at Schwepp.net. Episode 156, Recognizing the Real in the Forgery, the Pseudo-Clementine Literature. In this episode, as a kind of capstone to the long Abrahamic series we've been embarked on for some time now, with the palate-cleansing exploration of the Mandeans thrown in, I wanted to discuss the Pseudo-Clementines. This is a daunting task because the textual story of the literature known as the Pseudo-Clementines is so complicated that it makes even me freak out, and regular listeners know that one of the things that really gets me excited is a truly labyrinthine trail of texts and redactions and pseudonymous rewritings. So I tried to come up with an episode in various ways until I realized that the real point the main reason the pseudo-Clementines are interesting for the historian of Western esotericism is their relationship to ideas of authenticity, forgery, and how both of these concepts can serve the construction of esoteric authority or power. So that will be the final story of this episode. But of course, we shall do our usual due diligence and try to give a picture of just what is in the pseudo-Clementine literature. That's part one. Part two though which I find more interesting is an exploration of the ways in which a basic textual source, in this case a lost work telling of the life story of Clement of Rome, and the adventures he had with the Apostle Peter as they traveled around the empire spreading the gospel message of the early church, how this was used by a host of different players with different theological agendas over hundreds of years. This story tells us lots of interesting stuff about different factions in late 3rd, early 4th century Christianity, and maybe even some genuine stuff about power struggles in the early church in the first century. Scholars have argued a lot about that point, but I find it most interesting as a case study in the tug of war over texts, which sometimes occurs, where lots of different factions want the authority of a prestigious text, in this case the pseudo-Clementine novel, And they add all kinds of little touches of their own to make this text say what they want it to say, until we're left with a text which has, well, an almost incomprehensibly complicated self-contradictory theological and social message. In a short part three, we'll reflect a little bit on the dynamics of what might have been going on in the textual struggles outlined in parts one and two, and say a few things about forgery and authenticity in esotericism. Part one, the texts. So Clement of Rome, not to be confused with Clement of Alexandria, gentle listener, no connection between these two men, was an early Christian presbyter, elder, or bishop at Rome in the late first century CE. It's not entirely clear whether Rome had a bishop, yet a single bishop, in the sense which later became iconic, But this guy definitely was at least the leader of one of the major Christian groupings in the city. So that's some history. Legend, Christian legend, will make him the first bishop of Rome. The Apostle Peter lays his hands on Clement, and Clement becomes the guy. So he's like the proto-pope. Irenaeus and Tertullian, our favorite second century heresiologues, mention him as the bishop of Rome holding office in the last decade of the first century. So historians are very interested in this early or even first Bishop of Rome because he was, well, an early Bishop of Rome. And there is a letter attributed to Clement, to the Corinthians, which may actually be by him. Uh, It was certainly thought to be by him, by some churchmen from the second century onward. And this gives us some valuable information on the organization of the early church hierarchy, You can find that volume in that letter in volume one of the Loeb edition of the Apostolic Fathers, which you'll find in the notes to this episode. Now, that's historians. Christians are interested in Clement because they pretty much all rate him highly, usually as a saint, often considering him the guy who was directly ordained by St. Peter, so the next in line from the apostles. And this lineage, whether constructed or historical, went on to be very relevant to Christian constructions of their own apostolic traditions and authority, especially vis-a-vis the city of Rome and her bishops, or popes, as they were later known. And Christians also attribute to him loads of other stories, like how he was martyred when the emperor Trajan had him flung into the sea with an anchor tied around his neck, making him, by the twisted logic of Christian martyrdom, the patron saint of sailors. But We're not interested in this episode in either of these Clements, the historical early bishop or presbyter, or the legendary saint bishop, apostolic successor to Peter the Apostle. We are interested instead in a series of really curious forgeries or pseudepigraphic texts which have traveled under the name of that Clement. These works, the so called pseudo Clementine writings, are the subject of this episode. So we have to start with a short map of the pseudo-Clementines to give us some orientation. We're going to be mainly using the translation of Irmscher and Strecker in this episode, which you can find in volume two of Schneemelker's New Testament Apocrypha. Okay now, there are two main texts which survive, the pseudo-Clementine homilies and the pseudo-Clementine recognitions. Both are commonly agreed to go back to a hypothetical Grundschrift or origin document. Um, The Grundschrift can be located sometime in the third century and probably originates from somewhere in Syria. The two main documents that we have, the homilies and the recognitions, took the form that they're in now from the beginning of the fourth century in their present form. You won't go too far wrong if you think of the homilies and the recognitions as two versions of the same story, each version leaving some bits out, adding other bits, and each having their own special anecdotes, not present in the other. A bit like the Synoptic Gospels, in fact. So, boom, gentle listener, I have just skipped about two hours worth of discussion of the unbelievably complicated webs of mysteries surrounding these texts. Even for the Schwepp, this is too serious A romp through lost originals, Syriac and Armenian translations of lost Greek texts with multiple redactions, Latin translations, which may or may not be bodlerizing the original Greek, repeated bits of text getting remixed in different contexts, and all that good stuff. If we even go there, we'll be here all day. If you're interested in this material, the textual history of the Pseudo Clementines, there are sources listed in the recommended reading to this episode, which will take you into that labyrinth. But here's what we need to know about the Grundschrift, because, you know, although we don't have this text, we can say some stuff about it by sort of triangulating from the recognitions and the homilies. They, what do they have in common? Okay, that's the kind of stuff we would probably have found in the Grundschrift. It will have been something like a shortish novella telling the story of Clement of Rome's life. He grew up in a posh Roman family. Uh, he's actually related to the emperor Tiberius. But then he meets this weird Jewish preacher, the apostle Peter travels around with him, and is eventually converted to Christianity, but a Jewish form of Christianity. More on that later. And then he eventually becomes Peter's successor as leader of the Roman church when Peter dies at Rome. So it was a Christian novel, a Bildungsroman in fact, and it was kind of meant to be read like so many apocryphal acts that we haven't talked about much on the podcast, but which listeners can check out for themselves which kind of continue the narrative of the Acts of the Apostles found in the New Testament and tell us about what happened next, right? So this is what happened next after Acts of the Apostles. The Grundschrift will also have included a lot of reflections on theology and the ideal ordering of the church, because both of these feature very heavily in the documents that stem from it. However, this novel was drawing on a lot of, in retrospect, heterodox, theological belief. So that when later Christians tried to use it, and especially post-Nicene Christians, right, post-Trinitarian state Christianity Christians, they ran up against problems. And this is reflected in the many attempts to redact the text, which we can kind of detect in the homilies and the recognitions. But just to cut a long story short, No one entirely agrees on who redacted what and what their theological stance was and all that kind of stuff. There's a general story, but it's not possible, I think, to come to a full consensus on all the different stages that this text passed through. Now, things get interesting already with the Grundschrift, because it's thought that it drew on a number of very interesting and quite esoteric sources. Uh, No scholars agree on exactly what these were, but here are some of the things which have been proposed... And this list is semi-plagiarized from the article by Poudron in the Brill Encyclopedia of Early Christianity, which is a good source for some of the basic textual questions. If you want to get more serious, textually hit up F. Stanley Jones, whose works you'll find in the notes. So a doctrinal Ebionite work presented as the preaching of Peter will have been one of the sources for the Grundschrift. Now, who were the Ebionites? The Ebionites were a group known to us mainly from the heresy writers who were Jewish Christians who denied the divinity of Christ, viewing him instead as the most recent incarnation of a figure who appears throughout the ages called the true prophet in the Clementines. We're not entirely sure what the Ebionites called this guy. This Jewish Christian idea of a sort of divine prophetic figure who is sort of born again and again throughout history appears throughout the Clementine recognitions and the homilies. And it's something we've seen before in the podcast in other groups, notably Manichaeism and Mandeanism. We shall see a similar idea when we get to esoteric Islam, with the figure of Al-Khidr, the Green One, who seems to have an unlimited lifespan and to appear at key moments throughout history. In legend, he's hanging out with the Prophet Moses but he is also appearing to Sufis in, uh, you know, sort of well-attested historical instances. In the Clementine case, the first instantiation of the true prophet is Adam. And we don't get names for all his later incarnations, but we know that they existed until we get to Jesus, who is the latest appearance of this figure. And Jesus is an angelic figure of some kind in the pseudo-Clementine. So the the true prophet seems to be some kind of angelic being who takes on human form. Other sources for the Clement Romance, or Grundschrift, will have been an Acts of Peter, which is different from the one that we have, the Acts of Peter, a.k.a. the Actus Werkelenses. There will have been various other partial sources, such as the Book of the Laws of the Countries by Bardaisan the Degrees of James, mentioned by Epiphanius of Salamis, or else an anonymous world chronicle of Judeo-Christian origin, which is peculiar to the recognitions. Uh, Complicated already before we even get to the texts that we have, right? If all that is just confusing, here's the point to take away. Whoever composed the Grundschrift was writing a novel about Clement and Peter, in which the true teaching of Christianity is definitely a form of Judaism but Christian. So something that reminds us of the Ebionites that Irenaeus and others talk about. Okay, the Gentile Clement can convert to this religion, but once he converts, he needs to follow some reformed, stripped-down Jewish law. But it's still Jewish law, right? You cannot eat certain meats, all this kind of stuff. And Jesus is emphatically not God. There is only one God, God Almighty, to quote the great Prince Far-Eye in his groundbreaking Dubwise track, Dub to Africa. Those are some of the sources which probably went into the original novel, which we no longer have. Um, the We said we weren't going to get too textual, but you got to know that this is kind of fundamentally a Jewish Christian, uh, what they call monarchialist document. In other words, there's one God, none of this kind of Father and the Son or the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. No, one God. God is in charge of everything. This will be very relevant. There are more possibilities for um, influences on the Grundschrift, and we're going to skip them. And let's get to our narrative as it survives in the homilies and recognitions. And just one note here on the recognitions before we proceed. So the homilies survive in two manuscripts in Greek. Now, this doesn't mean this is the original Greek, of the Grundschrift, because it's definitely not, but it's a, some kind of reshuffled, remixed descendant of that. However, the recognitions survive in the Latin translation of one Tyrannius Rufinus. And this guy was part of a really high-octane Christian scene in the 4th century Eastern Empire. He was hanging out at the Marsaba Monastery in Palestine, which was a highly literate multilingual place where extreme ascetic practices rubbed shoulders with experiential metaphysics and polished Latin and Greek and Syriac compositions. And this Rufinus is the man who, acute listeners will recall, translated, or rather boldlerized, origins on first principles into Latin, such that it survives, as much as it survives, And he will again appear shortly on this podcast, because when we get to the Cappadocian Fathers and the great Evagrius of Pontus, another one of those Orthodox Gnostics in the line of Clement and Origen of Alexandria, we will see him again, because he actually is hanging out with Evagrius. So Rufinus isn't really the point here. We wanted to just kind of introduce him properly to our listeners. As for the purpose of this podcast, he is an important channel or transmitter of esoteric Greek language Christian materials like Origins, works, and the Clementine recognitions to the Western Empire so that a certain amount of esoteric, philosophically informed early Christian speculation that happens in the second, third, and fourth centuries in the Eastern Empire is getting curated, let's say, by Rufinus and thus survives through the Latinate Middle Ages. Now, Another thing about the recognitions, a recognitions story was kind of an established plot motif in the ancient novel. This was a device whereby a bunch of characters meet by apparent happenstance near the novel's denouement, and then it's suddenly revealed that they're all in fact long-lost family members who just hadn't recognized each other before. So in the case of the pseudo-Clementine recognitions, which survive in Rufinus's translation, and there's also a section in Syriac, uh, an Armenian comes into it as well. Don't get me started. So what happens in the recognitions is that Clement's mother, Matidia, and his older twin brothers, Faustinus and Faustinianus, went sailing off from Rome when Clement was a boy and were never heard from again. Then Clement's father set out to find them and he was never heard from again. Never again, that is, until the end or near the end, through the divinely inspired providence flowing through the apostle Peter when they all turn up, right? First of all, Clement's mum is alive after all, and seeing her reuniting with her son Clement through Peter as an obvious act of divine providence, she instantly converts to Christianity. Then his brothers turn up, living under different names, but now they reveal that they are in fact his brothers. And last but not least, Clement's father turns up, and the author manages to insert an anth- really virulent anti-astrological polemic here, along the way. So Clement is reunited with his family, Christianity wins, astrology is debunked, and that's where the title Recognitiones, Recognitions, comes from. It was a thing, and this is a Christian take on that thing. Now we want to talk about the Clement romance, the story of the pseudo-Clementines, which again is largely the same for our purposes across the homilies and the recognitions, although they, they differ as well. But before we do that, we want to look at how it's framed, because actually this has had little attention, I think, from scholarship on Western esotericism, and it's very important because this whole body of text is framed as secret knowledge. So at the head of manuscripts of the homilies is a letter. There's a series of letters, so let's talk about these. The first is a letter from Peter the Apostle to James, the head of the Jerusalem church basically telling James that he, Peter, is sending him a book of his collected sermons, but that James must keep it out of the hands of everyone except a specially trained inner elite of teachers. So, Peter's preaching is not for everyone. You have to know how to use it, otherwise misunderstandings can arise. Then there follows in the manuscripts a short note on how Peter's letter was received at Jerusalem. Basically, James says, damn, we better do what Peter says. And they institute an esoteric rule around the Petrine texts so that no one can get at them except carefully vetted candidates with proper training. And it talks about how long they have to be training and all this kind of stuff. Then we have a letter from Clement to James, head of the Jerusalem church, where Clement tells James, okay, Peter on his deathbed, handed me the leadership and bishopric of Rome, since I'm his old traveling companion and follower. And Clement says that Peter's final wish before dying was that Clement send to James his, that's Peter's, collected works. The same work, seemingly, that the earlier letter said he'd already sent to him. So there's some confusion here in the sources, obviously. So he has to send him the works, and he also has to write down the whole story of his and Peter's travels together so James knows that the Roman church is in good hands. So the version of the Clement romance, which then follows in the homilies, is the result of Clement keeping this promise to Peter on his deathbed. So that introduces the homilies, right? Now, these letters, or almost certainly pseudo-letters, right, pseudonymous letters, are framing The Clementine romance or novel as extremely authoritative, right? This novella is going to give us insights into the day to day events of the life of Clement, who's been traveling around with Peter. And Peter was one of the apostles who actually hung out with Christ. This is all emphasized. So this novel should be read as a continuation of the Acts of the Apostles in the canonical scriptures and was read that way by many Christians in the third and fourth centuries. But these letters also frame the text. As secret knowledge. The whole thrust of the first letter is that James and the Jerusalem church absolutely have to keep Peter's teachings out of the hands of those who are unprepared for them for two main reasons. And these reasons are made explicit. One, to avoid the kind of misinterpretation which, according to Peter, is rife among the early church, and to maintain unanimity of doctrine. Since people are reading the scriptures before they have been told what the scriptures mean, and so we're coming up with all kinds of wild interpretations. Peter wants to put a stop to this right away. Incidentally, the wild interpretations are things like Jesus is God, right? The scriptures might in- imply that, but we know that it doesn't say that at all. Now, this is really interesting and appears later in the narrative of the Clement romance itself. Uh, when Clement is debating with Appian, a Gnostic teacher, more on that shortly, Appian uses a bunch of arguments based on the Hebrew scriptures. And Clement, taking a slightly different tack, argues that the scriptures have been tampered with, and anything in there which seems to imply that there's more than one God, or that the Hebrew God, with all his well-known jealousies and wraths and the rest of his rather uncomfortably human characteristics as he appears in the narrative, right, if anything in the scripture seems to imply that that God is not the supreme God, it has either been misinterpreted or actually inserted by mischievous scribes who go unnamed but they're they're sort of the baddies of this narrative so the scriptures themselves are corrupt which is a very interesting line for a committed jewish christian to take but also they can only be interpreted properly by those who already know the truth that is to say that there is only one god god almighty so there is an attitude found in the pseudo clementines at large Which casts doubt on the scriptures as a source for wisdom, except when read and interpreted by an initiated elite. Same thing in the introductory letter with Peter's preaching, it also needs to be read by this elite, otherwise it will be misinterpreted. So these central texts are in other words, esoteric texts. The Bible itself, what is now, you know, sort of going to be known as the Bible, including the Hebrew writings, and Peter's preaching. And interestingly, the Clement Romance introduced by the letters, the homilies in this case, since it contains loads of Peter's kerugmata, his uh, preaching, what, what he said, this Clement Romance is also esoteric, and we are warned not to allow it to fall into the wrong hands. Thus, ancient readers of this book were reading esoteric wisdom reserved for a specially prepared elite, and this, of course, already raises the weird paradoxical situation which never seems to bother anyone but doesn't really make sense logically that we get with esoteric published texts you've read the intro it says definitely don't let anyone read this who isn't a specially prepared initiated candidate for reading okay well reader are you that person have you done the six-year training at the jerusalem church and all the rest of it no you haven't but somehow you still think it's okay for you to be reading this go figure now there is another interesting problem raised in these letters. Peter at 2.3 in the first letter, this is Peter to James, says, quote, for some among the Gentiles have rejected my lawful preaching and have preferred a lawless and absurd doctrine of the man who is my enemy, end of quote. Now, who is this enemy? I hear a listener ask. Well, that brings us nicely to part two of this episode, The Struggle. So there are arguably two or three main plot arcs, or let's say acts, like in the sense of a screenplay, in the Clement romance. We start with Clement's youth, his meeting with Peter, and conversion. That's the first part. And here we meet the baddie of the story, Simon the Samaritan, aka Simon Magus. Listeners will remember this gentleman from episode 81. He's the guy whom Irenaeus makes into the father of the whole Gnostic heresy. He's the arch Gnostic. All Gnosticism comes from this guy, according to Irenaeus. He appears in the Acts of the Apostles and in the Apocryphal Acts of Peter, an extra canonical work which was very widely read in antiquity and later. And as we mentioned, there was some form of Acts of Peter used as a source text for the original form of the Clementines, we think. Here he engages in a magical duel with Peter, Simon can fly, but Peter makes him plummet out of the sky like a stone and uh, get gravely injured, but Peter prays that he doesn't die. As a side note, that story makes me want to side with Simon, personally speaking. Being able to fly is really cool, but making people who can fly unable to fly seems kind of petty and evil to me. Let the guy fly, Peter. But anyway, that's the acts of Peter. We don't have a flying scene in the pseudo-Clementines. We have instead a public dispute Between Simon and Peter, in which Peter is shown to refute Simon's claims. We'll come back to that. Now, the second story arc is where Clement, who is now a Christian preacher in his own right, confronts Appian, who's one of Simon's followers in a public dispute. So here we see a kind of um, mirror image of the earlier dispute between Simon and Peter. And there are some great arguments on both sides. And when you read this bit, you think, Dang, Gnosticism really was a religious movement in antiquity because Appian basically lays out some classic Gnosticism. But we'll come back to this. Finally, Act Three, as it were, we have the recognition section where Clement's family all are reunited. And then there's a short repeat of the bit in the letter from Clement to James where Peter, on his deathbed, publicly makes Clement his successor in Rome. So he's gone from polytheist Roman posh boy to converted, committed Christian to Bishop of Rome. So having structured our basic plot arcs in the letters and then the Clementine romance itself, let's have a look at Peter's enemy, because this is where the struggle gets interesting. On the one hand, Peter is opposed to Simon Magus, the familiar figure from the Acts and so on. Simon is a spokesperson here in the Clementines for a highly dualistic theology. But it's interesting how he's introduced, and this is very significant. So he doesn't just appear. First of all, Peter lays out the doctrine of the true prophet, which we already alluded to. He then presents a curious doctrine of sous or pairs of opposites. Now, this is seemingly a particular concern of whoever wrote the original Clement novel. It has nothing to do with the well-known sous of the Valentinians, Although there's maybe a whiff of the same kind of Neopythagorean thinking in that you have the one giving rise to a dyad or a series of dyads. So basically for Peter, uh, you know, this is pseudo Clement writing in the voice of Peter, God is one, but he gives rise to groups of two throughout history. And of these groups of two, the Susdugis, one will be worse and one better. So examples given throughout the text include darkness and light right? Darkness came first, then light came afterwards. Light is better, of course. Cain and Abel. Something called female prophecy, which is the dark predecessor to the male prophecy of the true prophet. It's a bit unclear, but might refer to the fact that Simon is described as going around with a woman whom he considers to be a kind of incarnation of a divine spirit, a woman called Helen. So maybe something that has to do with that. Maybe it's just typical woman-hating, like sort of phallocentric theology that we find in so much Judaism and Christianity. Antichrist is the dark twin of Christ and so forth. The implication here is that Simon, Magus, is the dark evil half of the Susduki with Peter, the true apostle. Simon here is being cast as anti-Peter. Peter Peter says at homilies 2, 17, 4 to 5, Thus then, as the true prophet has said, a false gospel must first come from an imposter, and only then, after the destruction of the holy place, can a true gospel be sent forth for the correction of the sects that are to come. Thereafter, in the end, Antichrist must first come again, and only afterwards must Jesus, our actual Christ, appear, and then, with the rising of the eternal light, everything that belongs to darkness must disappear." Since now, as has been said, many do not know the conformity of the Seuzdugies with law, they do not know who this Simon, my forerunner, is. For were it known, no one would believe him. But now, as he remains unknown, confidence is wrongly placed in him." End of quote. So Simon and Peter are sort of a dark anti-apostle-apostle pair. This sort of wrong message is being uh, sort of theologically justified by this uh, construction of these these pairs, these pairings, these suzdukis. Now, after this uh, introduction to Simon, we learn a little bit about Simon's story, and it's wicked. Here's the most interesting and relevant parts from uh, Homilies 22, equivalent passages, Recognitions 2, 7 to 15. Quote, during a stay in Egypt, he acquired a large measure of Greek culture and attained to an extensive knowledge of magic and ability in it. He then came forward claiming to be accepted as a mighty power of the very God who has created the world. On occasion, he sets himself up for the Messiah, and he describes himself as the standing one. He uses this title since he is to exist forever, and his body cannot possibly fall a victim to the germs of corruption. Incidentally, as a side note here, that a lot of has been done on this the use of this word histemi which seems to have been very popular among groups that we know as gnostic continuing with our quote he also denies that the god who created the world is the highest nor does he believe in the resurrection of the dead okay now we're into the gnostic stuff right turning away from jerusalem he sets mount gerizim in its place in the place of our true christ he shows himself as the Christ, the content of the law he interprets according to personal arbitrariness. He speaks indeed of a future judgment, but he does not reckon with it in earnest, for were he convinced that God will call him to account, he would not have ventured in his wickedness to turn against God himself. Thus there are ruined not a few who do not know that Simon uses piety merely as pretense in order to steal secretly from men the fruits of truth, and who believes in him as though he were himself pious in his manifold promises and in the judgment promised by him, end of quote. So this Simon character knows magic, sets himself up as a kind of Christ figure, and maintains that the Hebrew God is not the true creator. So Peter will go on to have a public dispute with this Simon, and Simon claims that the Hebrew scriptures mention multiple gods which is true, that the God of the Old Testament cannot be the highest God, since he shows all those problematic, uh, not particularly divine characteristics in the narrative, like lack of foreknowledge and pettiness, which is also true. And so there must be a higher transcendent unknown God beyond any of this Hebrew scriptural material. Okay, Simon doesn't give us a Sophia myth, but he is presented as espousing most of the classic elements of a Gnostic theology and approach to the Hebrew canon. Needless to say, based on what we've already established, Peter refutes the hell out of Simon. There's only one God, God Almighty, and anything that says otherwise is either a perverted reading or an outright textual corruption, as we mentioned earlier. Now, the figure of Simon in the Pseudo-Clementines is completely fascinating for a couple of reasons. First of all, at homilies 26 to 32, which is paralleled in Recognitions 2, 9, and so on. He does a bunch of really cool magic stuff. Like making a kind of homunculus out of the soul of a boy who is he's apparently murdered by magical means, and then using this new form of human being that he's created as a helper for his other magical works. Very interesting. Also at Homilies 32... He can make statues walk. He can roll himself on the fire and not be burnt. He can fly. He can make loaves out of stones. He can become a serpent. He can transform himself into a goat. He can become two faced. He changes himself into gold. He opens locked gates. He melts iron. At banquets, he can produce illusions of all manner of different things. In his house, he makes dishes to be seen as being born by themselves to wait upon him without any visible slaves. In short, he is a very accomplished Magus. Now, that's all really interesting. And in fact, I feel like the figure of Simon and of his follower Appion in the Pseudo-Clementines is so interesting that we might as well just talk about the text in a bit more detail and get into the sort of magical stuff and the Gnosticism in a separate special episode. So let's just go ahead and do that because we won't have time to go over all the amazingness in this episode. Now, the other thing that's interesting about Simon is that he is structurally a stand-in for a number of different kind of evil figures. First of all, there's the Suzdugi structure that the text has explicitly set out. So Simon is to Peter as Appian is to Clement. Appian, again, is Simon's student whom Clement is going to uh, debate later on. Now, it's widely agreed that Simon just stands for heresy, generally, right? But this needs to be massaged a little bit. First of all, heresy doesn't really exist in the sense that we will come to know it in Syria when the Pseudo-Clementine novella was first published as the Grundschrift. But certainly bad Christian ideas exist in the mind of the author, and he definitely stands for those. But secondly... Simon clearly is a stand in for the Gnostic teacher, Marcion. The teachings that he spouts against Peter are closer to what we know of Marcionite Christianity than to anything else. So we can even be more specific than saying he's a Gnostic, and we can say that Simon in this text is a Marcionite Gnostic. But he also stands for, wait for it, Paul of Tarsus. The enemy of the original letter the hostile man mentioned by Peter to James, is almost certainly Paul of Tarsus, author of the Pauline letters, which become canonical in mainstream Christianity. Now, an anti-Paul take is common to a number of early Jewish Christian groups, the Ebionites in Irenaeus, This corinthians in epiphanius the elkesaites in eusebius the encratites in Origen. so we know for a fact that there were jewish christians who widely dissed paul we also know if you remember our episode on marcion that his bible was just paul so it makes sense that if you're going to make a figure like simon magus stand for the hated paul of tarsus You make him into a kind of Marcionite Gnostic, right? Because Marcionites are the lovers of Paul. This is fascinating to us because it shows that the extremely troubling and problematic Paul, who is absolutely essential to Orthodox Christianity as it eventually wins out, not only the theological problems that you might find with Paul, like the fact that he believes he's Jesus alive, even though he's dead and all that kind of stuff, and the the idea that Jesus' sacrifice is what saves humanity, which the Jewish Christians find completely absurd. And in fact, the the line on sacrifice in the pseudo-Clementines is just sacrifices wrong and immoral and uh, hated by God, part of this late antique move against sacrifice that we've talked about a lot in the podcast. This might also, and probably in my view, does reflect actual tensions within the early church, because remember, and this is referred to later on when Appian uh, debates Clement, paul wasn't actually an apostle of jesus right he had a vision of the dead jesus and then showed up in the jerusalem church saying hey everybody i'm an apostle i've just been talking to jesus all these people who actually knew jesus historically are you know bound to be a little bit confused by this and they might have had some questions i feel like there's some kind of garbled echo in our text here of maybe genuinely peter's own take on this which is like hey i thought i was the kind of nominal head of the disciples what's going on with this guy he just comes on the scene johnny come lately claims to be uh, maybe even more authoritative than me at any rate there is a fascinating series of simon and appian standing in for earlier figures of heresy and evil and doing it in a way which is kind of polyvalent but probably meant to be hiding the anti-pauline polemic which is why it doesn't just ever come out and say, it's Paul, which is one of the reasons that this work was able to survive with minimal redaction in uh, later orthodox circles. Because if if it had just said, Paul is evil, that's the end of it, right? But it doesn't. It says this guy, Appian, is evil, and this guy, Simon, is evil. And all Christians can get on board with that. The fact that he, the author is definitely pointing toward Paul is fascinating, however. Part three the recognitions. Now let's talk a little bit about the fascinating Nachleben of this work, first of all, and then talk a little bit about forgery and what's going on here, and all the kind of fascinating self-referential nods to the process of forging documents and uh, creating false narratives that this text contains. First of all, who read this work? We can't do better than to quote Pouderon again from the Brill Encyclopedia of Early Christianity because he does a great job of summarizing some of the later um, adventures this text went through. Quote, despite ideas such as the denial of the son's divinity and the coupling of opposed heavenly powers, that is the good and the evil being placed on the same level, the work enjoyed apostolic authority as it was considered to be the teaching of Clement, and thus it was adopted in several milieus. Origen cites it as having Peter's authority, and Epiphanius considers it authentic despite several interpolations. So, in other words, there are forgeries in this forgery, according to Epiphanius. Eusebius of Caesarea shows himself to be more suspicious, judging the version entitled Dialogue of Peter and Appian as being recent and, quote, not conserving the pure nature of the apostolic orthodox teaching, end of quote. Thus, it is also explained how Rufinus may have considered the two versions that reached him under the collective title recognitions as authentic, and how he may have considered it worthwhile to translate one of them. It is to be noted that, in the course of his translation, he omitted certain passages, judging them to, quote, pass his level of understanding, end of quote. So this is Rufinus kind of saying, well, that's not orthodox. I'm just going to leave that out and consider that it's, um, it's just beyond me to figure out what the author is saying here. While the complete version of the Greek homilies was somewhat neglected, with only two manuscripts preserved to this day, Rufinus's Latin translation knew a great success. This is demonstrated not just by the large number of copies now still preserved, but also by its presence at the heart of several medieval hagiographies, of which the golden legend by Jacopus de Varagine is the most beautiful example. The character of Simon, such as he is portrayed in the later versions of the book, was very popular. His significant popularity greatly influenced the beginnings of the literary figure Dr. Faust, thus giving Western culture one of its greatest myths, end of quote. So that's all good stuff, and obviously when we get to the Faust myth, having covered the pseudo-Clementines with a bit of detail will allow us to uh, refer listeners back to this Exposition when we talk about the pseudo Clementine depiction of Simon Magus as one of the main sources for the story of Faustus. But turning away from Nachleben per se and back to the texts themselves, what I find particularly fascinating in this text or texts or layers of texts is not only the layers of forgeries it contains, right? The two pseudo Clementines we possess are both quite different reworkings of an original document for clearly different agenda. But, you know, what does it mean for an author to rework what is meant to be the ipsissima verba of Peter himself or of Peter's uh, chief disciple, Clement of Rome, in the interests of Christian teaching? What does it mean to be meddling with this stuff to make it more orthodox, to kind of tune it to the times and to your particular audience? That's interesting, but It's not only the layers that are interesting. Whoever compiled the homilies clearly had a hardline, anti-dualist, and so anti-Orthodox theology in mind. And there are some theories that uh, a 3rd or 4th century Arian Christian redactor has sort of taken this text, jumped on the monarchialist bandwagon, and reuse the Grundschrift for a new Arian purpose. We'll talk about Arianism and Trinitarianism in an upcoming episode, gentle listeners, because we are in the fourth century after all, and it's all about to become very important and indeed uh, politically important. But Rufinus of Aquileia is obviously attempting to take this text and save it for those who, like him, believe that Jesus is God. Maybe not full Trinitarian orthodoxy yet, as Rufinus's precise theological views are a bit unclear, Uh, to me at least, but Jesus for him is definitely not some reincarnating angelic prophet. He is God in some way. So in Rufinus's case, he's taking a text which is authoritative and obviously he thinks definitely worth saving for what he considers to be orthodox Christianity, but there's some problems with it, right? So he's going to have to kind of do some meddling with the text himself, which he uh, passes off. To us as, oh, there are certain passages of it that just went beyond my understanding. Um, you know, presumably meaning their esoteric wisdom that might confuse people. So we should just take it out, because if it confuses me, Rufinus is probably going to confuse the lay reader, and uh, that way we can also sanitize this text for a Western audience. Both the homilies and the recognitions, thus as we have them, are forgeries reworkings of an earlier document, which the reworkers presumably took to be authentic records of Peter and Clement in the earliest church. But that document, the Grundschrift that these are eventually going back to, was also, of course, a forgery. Now, so far, this is business as usual in text territory, especially esoteric text territory. Reworkings, reattributions, editing for doctrine, all that stuff is familiar. However, here's what gets me about the pseudo-Clementines. The text itself comments directly on the process of forgery, right? With Peter alleging that the scriptures themselves have been tampered with. Now, that, along with the doctrine of Suzdugis, which implies that in order for the true preaching to take place, there has to be a false preaching that comes before it, raises all kinds of really interesting questions in my mind about this whole idea of authentic text. And I wonder what kind of questions it raised in the minds of the compilers and editors and various redactors of these textual streams coming off of the original Clement romance. Did they ever stop to reflect on what exactly they were doing? Imagine you are the original editor of the Grundschrift document. You put it together from all these different sources that you're interested in. You are certainly a Jew, perhaps some form of Ebionite or recognizable as such to your theological adversaries at any rate. You're probably not calling yourself that. You're probably calling yourself, you know, a follower of the true prophet or something like that. And you're putting together a document which you plan on placing in the mouths of the apostle Peter and Clement of Rome. And in your source material, there's a bunch of stuff about how the foundational scriptures of the Jews have some bits tampered with by later redactors, people just like you, Which is why they seem to tell false doctrines of multiple gods and stuff like that. So, what does that make you as a compiler? Anyway, as I say, there's nothing perhaps that unique in the pseudo Clementines that makes them especially pseudo, although pseudo they certainly are. But to me, they stand as a kind of monument to the interesting problems that arise when texts are forged. And precisely because The texts comment on the process of forgery and comment a lot on the spread of false doctrine, the uh, inability for non-esoteric, non-initiated people to understand the truth when they see it in front of them, and so on and so forth. But if I'm honest, the reason I was really attracted to that aspect within the pseudo-Clementines is because of the novel by William Gaddis, 1955, The Recognitions which is a novel of the sort of New York monde of the 1950s. Extremely difficult, extremely long, extremely torturous, but highly, highly recommended. Very beautiful, but very, very difficult. And it even has a recognition scene at the end. Um, if you're interested in, for example, the uh, pseudo-documentary F is for Fake, which was put together by Orson Welles in the 1960s, which is a great... Uh, Commentary and exploration of the whole question of authenticity and forgery and so on and so forth. If you're interested in that piece, you definitely want to check out Gaddis's novel, The Recognitions, because it was there first and is perhaps the most amazing exploration possible of forgery and authenticity and draws directly on the pseudo Clementines. That brings us to the end of our cusp of the fourth century Abrahamic uh, series. Join us next time as we take a very different tack and enter back into the world of alchemy when we introduce the great Zosimus of Panopolis with the help of the great Matteo Martelli. And until then, be like the entire scriptural canon of uh, Christianity, along with the preachings of Peter and indeed the Clementine novel itself, and stay esoteric.